How can a woman walk out of her home late at night with no belongings, never to be found again? How can it be that after so many people search for so long, there's not a single trace of her anywhere? No footsteps in the woods, no errant clues, not even a suspect. How do you wrap your head around it? What would you do to uncover the whole truth, or at least some of it? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who believes that people should be assumed innocent until proven guilty, in theory. But sometimes that belief is put to the test, and I'm like, come on. Which I know isn't fair, but neither is life. Today we'll learn about the truly confounding disappearance of Lori Ceci Beauvais, and I will do my best not to make a judgment before I have all the facts. Oops, too late. I wish I could begin by telling you something about Lori Ceci Beauvais, her interests, her hobbies, anything. But personal information about her is extremely hard to come by. Indeed, even the newspaper accounts I could find on her disappearance were from more than 10 years after the incident. So it's hard to nail down even some concrete facts. Most of the information I could find on Lori treats her as though she just popped into existence the day before tragedy befell her. I think it's important to remember that Lori was a whole person who had hopes and dreams, likes and dislikes, who probably had a favorite kind of food, a favorite band, favorite movie. She met her husband, Tyrone, at some point, and they married at some point. And then, on the evening of Saturday, June 7, 1997, 26-year-old Lori Ceci Beauvais Her husband, Tyrone, and her sister, Renee, and Renee's husband went out for a late dinner at Red Lobster in Lakewood, New York. They finished dinner around 10.30 and parted ways. According to Tyrone, he and Lori got into an argument back at home, and Lori went out for a cigarette and a walk around 2 a.m. She left her wallet, money, ID, and cigarettes at home, and she didn't come back. In the hours that followed, Tyrone called another one of Lori's sisters, Jenny, and said, Lori is missing. I can't find her. Jenny asked if he'd checked in on Lori's parents or with Renee. Apparently, his answer was, well, I parked outside to see if there was any movement inside and there was nothing. And that, strangers, will be the first of many red flags. Like, sure, cell phones weren't really a thing in 97, but landlines were, and so is this thing called getting out of your car and knocking on a door. It sounds to me like what Tyrone said was, no, I didn't call her parents, and I creeped around Renee's house for a minute. Like, not the most obvious behavior of someone truly concerned. Then again, some of what Jenny later reported doesn't exactly match up with official timelines, so we need to take this claim with a grain or two of salt. Jenny called not only her parents and Renee, but some of her co-workers at Kay Jewelers, where she and Lori both worked. No one had seen or heard from Lori. After getting a call from her sister, Renee met up with Tyrone, and the two drove around the area looking for Lori. According to the blog Missing Lori Beauvais, Renee later said, I remember him taking me on Waltonian Road and then stopping at Asheville B-O-C-E-S in front of a garbage dumpster. He asked me to look in the dumpster because when we find her, it may not be good. 
I remember the sick feeling I had in my stomach and how scared I was to be in the car alone with him after he said that. I hadn't yet come to accept that Lori could have gotten in harm's way. Although, if I had allowed myself to listen to my intuition and the sick feelings I experienced when I first received the phone call, I should have known. Okay. Look, I've said it before. People do wacky things when they're freaked out. But asking someone to check if their sister's dead body is in a dumpster? Like, do that shit yourself, man. And also, you went from not bothering to call her parents to assuming she might be dead in a dumpster? Listen, I'll admit that my mind also tends to go to the worst possible scenario. Like, recently there was an awful smell in our apartment that we couldn't identify, and I suggested that perhaps our very sweet middle-aged downstairs neighbor had killed her husband and his corpse was rotting in their living room under ours. It turned out there was meat that my husband didn't realize was wrapped in the bottom of a box it was delivered in, and it had been sitting out for a week. But... I consume a lot of true crime stuff, and Lori went missing in 97. I'm pretty sure true crime was not yet America's favorite pastime like it is now. I'm just saying, assuming your missing loved one is in a dumpster is not a great look. If, of course, that is, in fact, what happened. At 11.15 a.m. on Sunday, June 8th, Tyrone Beauvais filed a missing persons report with the local Lakewood Busty police. Patrolman Paul Gustafson took the call and became the point person on the case that he would end up pursuing for years, even after he eventually retired from the police force more than 15 years later. A huge search commenced with local and state police, FBI, community volunteers, and search and rescue dogs looking everywhere for Lori. A week after Lori went missing, more than 100 volunteers showed up to search. With so many people mobilized to find Lori, her family was hopeful. They figured they would at least find some clues that might lead to where she went. But the search efforts were fruitless. Lori was missing without a single trace. With nothing to go on, it wasn't going to be easy to find a suspect. With no body, it wasn't clear what a suspect would even be guilty of at this point in the investigation. But Renee and Jenny began to put some possible puzzle pieces together when they remembered some strange behavior on husband Tyrone's part in the hours leading up to Lori's disappearance. On June 7th, the day Lori went missing, Tyrone wouldn't let Lori out of his sight. Renee said she and Lori had gone shopping that day, and Tyrone insisted on coming with them. She said it was like Tyrone didn't want Lori to be alone with her. Jenny said Lori came to visit her at Kay Jewelers that day, and Tyrone wouldn't even let Lori go into the store to say hi. She said Lori just kind of sighed and rolled her eyes over Tyrone's behavior. And I don't need to point out how not okay this behavior is, right? A family friend who owned a pizza place where Lori and Tyrone had lunch that day said he noticed tension between the couple. In an interview Jenny gave to a podcast for a local CBS affiliate called Unsolved True Crime in WNY, she claimed that after Tyrone called her to say Lori hadn't come back from her pre-dawn cigarette break, he refused to go to the police. In her version of the story, she's the one that filed the police report in the early afternoon of the 8th. Granted, the interview was in 2021, more than 20 years after her sister had disappeared, but this feels like a pretty major detail. In that same interview, Jenny also said, She was scared of the dark. We knew that she smoked. 
Her cigarettes and her purse were at her apartment. If she went for a walk, we don't know exactly what time, but we know she got home after 11, and I worked with her. She wouldn't even take out the garbage at the end of the night at Kay's without somebody with her because she was scared of the dark. As Jenny goes on to say, and as I can attest as a former smoker, no smoker going out for a smoke, especially after a fight or argument, leaves without their cigarettes. Anyone who has ever been addicted to cigarettes knows you take your cigarettes with you when you go anywhere. Officer Paul Gustafson told the same podcast in 2021 that in the days following Lori's disappearance, law enforcement gained a lot of information about what was going on in Lori's life around the time she went missing. Unfortunately, he doesn't elaborate at all. He goes on to say that Lori had, quote, a lot of things going on in her life which all played a role in our investigation, end quote. What does that mean? And why don't we know what those things were? Like, was she secretly a Canadian spy? Did she sell plutonium on the black market? Was she having an affair? Even more cryptically, Gustafson alludes to several persons of interest, but we have no idea who they were. And I get that people of interest have a right to remain anonymous until their involvement is concretely determined, but, like, those people remain a complete mystery to this day. Gustafson said there were multiple people who would not cooperate. Multiple people. Who the hell were they? Maybe the information is out there somewhere. Maybe I could Aaron Brockovich this shit and, like, go to the Lakewood Busty Police Department and demand to see the files. But honestly, I don't know how any of that works. That's not what this podcast is. And most importantly, I just don't have the cleavage for it. On or around June 21st, two weeks after Lori went missing, Tyrone lawyered up, which is a perfectly reasonable thing for the spouse of a missing person to do, but he also stopped cooperating with police, which was fishy to everyone else involved in the case and still is to this day. And it was the not cooperating anymore that landed Tyrone in police crosshairs. Him and the mysterious multiple other people, I guess. Regardless of the attention on him, though, Tyrone continued to refuse to cooperate, and at some point between 97 and 2002, he moved to North Carolina and remarried. And on the surface, I suppose that could be considered suspicious, but people move out of state all the time, regardless of their connection to a missing persons case. I understand the impulse to get away from a place that might remind you of trauma. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, if you have nothing to hide, why the caginess? The Unsolved podcast calls Tyrone, quote, the main suspect in the case. But he never was a suspect. And you know me, I'm not the one to be like, cops are the best! But it does seem to me like if they had anything on this guy, he would have actually been a suspect. Despite Gustafson's claims that they were gathering lots of information about Lori's life and that they had multiple persons of interest, a month after Lori went missing, there was still nothing to go on. No leads, no clues, no actual suspects. And so, Lori's family did the next most logical thing and sought the help of a private investigator. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. They hired a psychic. Again, to be fair, there do seem to be a lot of holes and conflicting information in the reporting of this story, so of course it's possible a PI was hired at some point, but it doesn't appear that way. When interviewed about it, Lori's family was like, we hired a psychic, not we hired a PI. 
The Sessi family reached out to renowned psychic Carol Pate from such reputable shows as Unsolved Mysteries, The Other Side, and The Lisa Show. And look, I don't mean to cast aspersions on Unsolved Mysteries. Lord knows this show is basically the snarky podcast version of Unsolved Mysteries, minus the iconic music, Robert Stack, and the shoulder pads and perms. But it's not a news program, you know? And any show that trots out a psychic to help solve cases loses a bit of credibility in my mind. Because science. And if you think I didn't go down a Carol Pate rabbit hole, then where have you been? Carol Pate, who, according to Carol Pate, began helping police with investigations by the age of 12 and helped solve all kinds of cases and who actually believes, quote, people with high spiritual vibrations cannot contract the HIV virus. Pate, who believes you can pray COVID away. Carol Pate, who from all indications led the Sessi family on an expensive goose chase that led nowhere. Pate apparently described the scenery in which she believed Lori could be found. It was, according to a piece in ObserverToday.com from July 2021, essentially a park-like area with mountains in the background. In other words, literally anywhere in western New York State. Whether or not Pate thought Lori was alive or dead, I don't know. Regardless, the family spent months and lots of money searching for Lori based on Pate's information. It goes without saying they didn't find her. And then, a year after Lori disappeared, there was a trace of a new possibility in her case when a fisherman reeled in a clump of human hair in Chattaqua Lake. Officials searched the lake and found a sweatshirt, but Gustafson confirmed the sweatshirt belonged to someone who'd been boating on the lake and lost it overboard. And the hair wasn't Lori's. And so, Lori's family finally sought the help of a private investigator. I'm sorry, I misread that again. Sorry, they once again sought the help of a psychic. In 2000, the family appeared on the Montel Williams show and received a consultation from none other than Sylvia Brown. Sylvia Brown, who I covered last season in an episode all about psychics, so I don't need to go into details. She's fraudulent, to say the least. Suffice to say, this fucking guy. Renee welcomed the opportunity because, for some insane reason, Sylvia Brown's services were in such high demand that the wait to see her privately was upwards of a year, and she charged an arm and a leg. Making themselves in the case the subject of a tawdry daytime talk show was actually a pretty smart move. Not because they got a free reading from a phony who pretended to have psychic abilities, but because it got the story out there on a national level. I couldn't find footage of the episode, but Renee told the Buffalo News that Sylvia told her Lori was absolutely, without a doubt, in a lake in Hartford, Connecticut, and someone named Glenn had something to do with it. According to MissingLoriBovet.com, a blog devoted to this case, which seems to quote news articles, but frustratingly, like most of this case, doesn't always cite their sources, an extensive search was conducted at the lake in question in Hartford with no results. And still... No one knows who this Glenn person might be. Despite the national attention from the Montel Williams show and the $50,000 reward being offered for any information leading to Lori's whereabouts, Lori's case went cold. In September 2006, there was yet another spark of hope when human remains were found in Arkwright, New York, 
Unfortunately, the remains belonged to another woman, Yolanda Bendix, who had gone missing in 2004 while getting groceries on her way home from work. Then, in 2008, for reasons that are wholly unclear, Paul Gustafson began re-interviewing people involved in Lori's case based on new developments. Like the multiple persons of interest, though, new developments is a vague statement. Who knows what those new developments were? I wonder if there was a new DA who had run on the promise of solving old cold cases, a thing hopeful DAs love to promise during their campaigns. Or maybe someone had been harboring a dark secret all those years and finally came clean. Whatever it was, it prompted Gustafson to re-interview upwards of 40 people, which is a lot of people to interview unless you have something pretty concrete to go on. MissingLaurieBovet.com quotes Gustafson saying... Through these interviews, I learned some new information and have been digging deeper into the case from a new angle. There are certain things that were going on at that time in her life that are case-sensitive. Another officer involved in the case was quoted in 2008, saying, The case file is as big as two full-sized bales of hay, but we have no Lori Bove. What? How could they possibly have that much? Because still, all anyone in the public knows is the story I summed up in a couple paragraphs at the beginning of this episode. What are these droves of information? Is it just me, or does it seem weird that 11 years after she went missing, they were still being cagey? Look, I'm no small-town police chief, but wouldn't it behoove them to put as much information as they possibly can into the public's hands? Like, whose reputation are they trying to protect? What is so sensitive that it can't be shared? Gustafson alludes to pieces of the puzzle coming together, but as far as I know, at that 11-year mark, despite all these puzzle pieces and hay bale-sized case files, everyone had exactly as much information as they'd had 11 years earlier. So, with police kidding themselves, or at least talking a big game on the mountains of evidence in this case, things still remain desperate in the search for Lori Beauvais over a decade after she disappeared. Even local sheriff Joe Garacci told the Post-Journal, One of the biggest challenges is the loss of evidence you would gather from the crime scene. Weather, the elements, and environmental conditions can destroy a lot of physical evidence. Cold cases are always a challenge. In any homicide investigation, a majority of information comes from the victim. Okay, so what's in the massive case file then? Of course, the other awful thing is that no body means no closure. Without a body, the loved one of a missing person can't help but always have some hope that their missing loved one will come walking through the door one day. So, you can imagine Lori's family's feelings when in 2013, three women were found being held captive in the basement of a literal monster in Ohio. Obviously, they knew Lori wasn't one of the three survivors, but the whole thing brought with it a sense of hope that maybe Lori was still out there somewhere. A friend of Lori's told the Post-Journal, I can tell you that I was so happy for those girls. I know they're going to be scarred, but I was so happy for those girls that they could be reunited with their families. I would want nothing more than for that to happen with Lori. We pray every day. That was really something. And you know, you hear that? My God, you never know. Maybe. And Paul Gustafson said, We certainly would 
like to hope that we would have an outcome of that nature in this investigation as well. It certainly crossed my mind, as I'm sure it did any investigator across the country with an open missing persons case of this nature. To have an outcome of that nature would be very encouraging, as I'm sure the family would agree. It's something I thought about at the time that story developed in Cleveland. But I have to say, personally, as someone with a propensity toward dark thoughts to begin with, I honestly don't know what would be worse. To be murdered right away or to be held and tortured for decades and then be found. To say that the women found in Ohio would be scarred is a pretty major understatement. I can't imagine being able to come back from that kind of trauma. The situation itself would have been bad enough, but then to live the rest of your life as that woman who was kidnapped and held hostage for years? That's a heavy burden. Then again, someone more resilient than me may have an easier time recovering from something like that. For Lori's family, though, their hope was somewhat renewed by the case in Ohio. And Gustafson told the Post-Journal, I'm confident that there are those individuals who hold information that would certainly lead us to Lori's whereabouts within our community. As always, I urge anyone with information, whether anonymous or not, to contact me. As little as they feel that information may be, it may be just that small piece of information that leads this to where we're at. We have many pieces to this puzzle. I'm just missing a few pieces. And he reminded the community that there was a $50,000 reward for any information leading to Lori's whereabouts. Of course, the one person with the most information, Lori's widower, Tyrone Beauvais, still wasn't interested in cooperating. If he did know more than he initially told police back in 1996, he never shared it. And unfortunately, he never will. In 2018, on a road trip in Utah with his second wife and their two kids, Tyrone Beauvais got into a truly horrific car accident that killed him and his wife instantly. Their 11-year-old son died on the way to the hospital, and the 17-year-old son, Tyler, survived with major injuries. So... Listen, this is dicey. I don't want to disparage the dead. (laughs) What am I saying? I disparage the dead all the time. I literally did it in this episode once already when I snarked all over Sylvia Brown. I don't know much about Tyrone's life after he moved to North Carolina and got remarried and had kids. Hell, I don't know much about his life before then. One guy on Facebook said Tyrone and his family were, quote, such a wonderful family. Lord knows there are plenty of shitty people with families and the appearance of decent lives. Also, even if he had a wonderful family, it doesn't mean he might not have been involved in his first wife's disappearance. The list of dudes we all thought were great but turned out to be awful trash people is long. But also, just because he was married to a woman who went missing in 96 and was never found doesn't make him a bad person. Obviously, if he played a part in Lori's disappearance... That makes him a bad person. And this is where the whole innocent-until-proven-guilty thing comes into play. Tyrone was never officially a suspect in Lori's disappearance. So, officially, I can't say good riddance, but also, do I really want to be the kind of person who celebrates someone's death? 
I mean, the answer to that question is definitely yes when they are a trash person. I have no qualms celebrating the deaths of people who are terrible. And I'm sure there are one or two people out there who will celebrate when I die, but that doesn't make it good or right. I don't know if Tyrone was a trash person or not. No one does, and we never will. I don't know if, personally, I could ever share a home or a bed with someone whose spouse went mysteriously missing and was never found and who refused to cooperate with police. Like, how do you look past that, you know? I have a hard enough time looking past the fact that my partner is a registered independent. Imagine if I found out he had an ex who went bloop into the night and he was the last person who saw them alive and wouldn't talk to the police about it? I don't think so. Lakewood Busty Police Chief at the time, John Bentley, said, He knew the answers to where she was and what happened to her. He was our person of interest in the case, and he still is, even though he is now deceased. It's a tragic accident. It made it more frustrating. Our link to our missing person, the last link to our missing person, is now gone, and it just makes it that much more difficult. Which, again, makes me ask, what did they have on him, and why was he never considered a suspect? Clearly, I don't understand how policing works. If the chief of police believed this guy knew what happened to her, he must have a reason to believe that, right? Why is everything in this case so cryptic? And if he did do it, how? How do you murder anyone, let alone the person you love, and then just get away with it? How does an average person just disappear a whole entire human adult person and leave nothing substantial enough behind to even be considered a suspect in their disappearance. If he killed her, where in the world did he bury her so that nothing was ever found in all the searches? And how did he get back home in time to clean up and make it so that he could call her family and act like he had no idea where she was? One would think it would take a sociopath to do that. And if he was a sociopath, how did he go on to remarry and have kids and have a family that was considered, at least by one random dude on Facebook, to be wonderful? I guess I take that last one back. I'm pretty sure I know a sociopath or two with families who at least have some people fooled into thinking they're good people, or at the very least, not sociopaths. Last year, in 2021, Lori's sister Jenny told the Unsolved podcast... We all know and believe in our hearts who is responsible. In my mind, I guess I'm thinking, if that's over, Tyrone has all the information. He's not going to jail. That chapter's closed. So we need to find her. We believe maybe somebody has some kind of information out there. Now that Tyrone is dead, that they would feel more comfortable coming forward. If they do know, if he did tell anybody, We won't know. But that's our hope. So it seems that law enforcement and Lori's family did at least have to resign themselves to the fact that Lori was most likely not alive somewhere. It's hard to imagine someone keeping her captive and a complete secret for three decades. And if she had been allowed to go into public, surely someone at some point would have recognized her. Unless they disappeared her into one of those communities that don't tend to watch Montel Williams. There was no indication that Lori was unhappy enough to walk away from her life in the middle of the night with no belongings, not even her cigarettes. And even if she had done that, someone at some point would have recognized her. Which means that from here on out, anytime any human remains are found anywhere remotely near western New York State, 
Lori's loved ones are going to find themselves once again hoping against hope that they might finally get some closure. In September of 2001, two sets of human remains were found in the woods of Chattaqua County, near where Lori lived and disappeared. Neither belonged to Lori. Which leads me to this question. How many bodies of murdered women are there scattered around the wilderness in this country? My God. There were enough missing women in the area that residents began to suspect a serial killer. But Paul Gustafson believes the circumstances are all different enough in each case that it's unlikely they're all the work of one person. The most remarkable and terrifying thing to me about this case is the thoroughness with which Lori disappeared. I don't think she walked away from her life willingly. I think she was murdered and disposed of, and if so, it's hard to believe it was some random stranger who took advantage of a single woman who was afraid of the dark and out for a stroll by herself at two in the morning, without her cigarettes. If she was grabbed from her front porch or whatever, you'd think someone would have heard something. A scream, a car door slam, tires squealing off into the night. And at some point in the ensuing 25 years, someone might have come forward to say, I think my cousin Bob had something to do with it. I think at the very least, Tyrone Beauvais knew what happened to her. Maybe he did have something to do with it. But if so, what did he do and how did he do it between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. so thoroughly that he left not a single shred of evidence? I've watched enough forensic files to know there's always something they forget to get rid of. A shovel in the shed with a tiny smear of blood, dirt under the fingernails, something. But all my suppositions and judgments amount to a hill of beans. Tyrone Beauvais was not a suspect. There is no conclusive evidence anywhere leading to the resolution of this case. There is no body, living or dead, that could be Lori Ceci Beauvais to give her family closure. We can only hope that someday something will change. Until then, the truth can only be known to Lori Ceci Beauvais herself, wherever she may be, and whomever she may have fatefully encountered that dark June morning in 1997. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. The government has been known to do some unethical things, but they would never try to get into our brains and control us. Right? Right? Government mind control. The true and the possibly untrue. Also, check me out on the season finale episode of Rabia Chowdhury's spine-tingling podcast, Nighty Night, wherever you listen to podcasts. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Ryan Garcia, Lauren Hooper, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Thank you.